This episode is sponsored by Intel. By using the power of our technology, scale of our resources, and expertise and passions of our people, we are helping create a more inclusive and responsible culture, industry, and world. We are helping women grow their careers and change the future of technology. And we are taking steps to increase the number of women in technical roles and senior leadership. Our actions support Intel's purpose to create world-changing technology that improves the life of every person on the planet. Glass Ceiling Institute presents Unravel, where we bring together thought leaders, research excellence, and best practices to realize a diverse and inclusive workplace. Hello, Stacy. We are back for episode two. I can't believe they haven't shut us down yet. We're back. Hi, everyone. <laughs> um, episode two, live. <laughs> uh, so let's see. We should talk about a couple of things that came up since the last episode. We actually had a couple of people ask us about acronyms yeah. Uh, yeah, related so to diversity. Yep. Some people um, were asking about some of the acronyms that you, we were using because I think a lot of the time we use DNI interchangeably with DEIA. So, Michelle, can you give our listeners some definitions of those acronyms that we use? Yes. And let me just start by saying that acronyms themselves are such a barrier to anything. <laughs> so, <laughs> the first, so I've been in tech for 30 years. The first week, in my job at a technology company, I literally didn't know what people were saying at all. Their words were in English. They were speaking English, but I couldn't understand literally any conversation. Of course, I didn't want to appear completely stupid and ask hard questions like, what does that three-letter acronym mean? So I was just oblivious for the first month of my entire career. And I would just say that's something very specific to tech as well, right, that we just... You have all these little acronyms that you expect people will understand what they are. And then you come to find out there's a whole group of people that just don't even have a clue what you're talking about. So everyone should be aware of that. Right. So I'm so glad that we did get these questions. So, you know, for a long time, we just used to talk about diversity and then we started to talk about inclusion, which is, of course, about creating a better culture in your company. It's not just enough to go out and have a diverse population of workers that you actually want people who work there to feel that they belong and they're they're part of something. And I think Renee, we're going to talk to Renee a little bit later today. She'll talk about what equity means versus equality. So equity is really about equal participation and equal rights. But then accessibility has become important. And so that's what we mean when we say DEIA. It's diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility. And accessibility can mean a few things. It can mean accessibility from an abilities perspective. So obviously there's a lot of people in the workplace that have disabilities. So whether you're hearing impaired or visually impaired, but we're also starting to see under this idea of accessibility is mental health is now falling under there. So for a lot of people I've worked with, that's a really important thing that, you know, we're, we're taking that a lot more seriously now in the workplace. And, um, you know, particularly in tech, it's a hard charging environment. It's, you can't always necessarily be on your game every single day. So, um, so D, yeah, right. So DEIA really refers to what the federal government in the U.S. is now standardizing on. 
And so we're going to use that. That's going to be something that we'll standardize on in, in our nomenclature. Um, nomenclature is a fancy word for acronyms. And um, so it's. I think it's important that people understand what that means. So I'm, we'll probably be able to get some other expert back in here who can talk a lot more eloquently about a lot of these new acronyms. We definitely should have someone come on and talk about gender 101 and gender identities and the acronyms around that. I think that would be a great episode to have as well. Oh, that's a great idea. That's a great idea. Let's do that. Yeah. Um, so here we are, episode two. Um, what's happening this week? What's happened with the glass ceiling? What are we doing now with the glass ceiling? Um, what's an update? Right. So the last two weeks have been extremely busy because we launched everything. Obviously, we have this podcast. We have the website that's been built. We have our survey that's gone out. That's a global survey of 4,000. So maybe people on here would love to be able to get the link to that survey. Um, that's going to be a really critical element for us as part of the glass ceiling report, particularly in tying back to economic consequences of DEIA. A really important part of that survey is going to be analyzing the data around intersectionality. Mm. Um, so that's something that's you're going to hear a lot of people talking about that intersectionality is where you look at more than one demographic at a time so that you can really dig into how the workplace differs depending on if you're maybe looking at gender and ethnicity at the same time or gender and race at the same time. So for example, we well know that the workplace for black women has a very different experience than it does for white women and obviously that it has for white men. So gender, race is an area that we're looking at. Abilities is another area we're looking at. Age as well. So you can imagine crossing gender and age and seeing very different outcomes in the data and, and the consequences for the workplace. And then that also has a really large impact the, on the economy. Um, well, so a lot of lanes in those intersections, many, <laughs> many lanes in those intersections. Well said, Stacy. well said. <laughs> wow, um, that's exciting. A lot of work. We're glad that's out. We're really glad that's out. Yeah, yeah, and people who want to participate in the survey um, either in the quantitative survey or maybe submit yourself for uh, part of the qualitative surveys that we're doing. That Those will be 80 interviews. And if you want to be part of that, please go to www.glassceilinginstitute.com and go to the contact us. And there's a link if you want to participate or get involved. We'd love to have you. And now as our guest speaker for our second podcast, we are absolutely thrilled and honored to have Renee Redwood with us. Renee has been involved in this work for many, many years. Renee was the original Federal Glass Ceiling Commission director appointed by President Clinton, and we are thrilled to have her here. She facilitates dialogue in the private sector world and in the public sector world on race, equity, inclusion, diversity. She is amazing, and we are thrilled to have her here with us today. is important this morning. It's so important. So we are lucky, to, really lucky enough to be joined by the amazing Renee Redwood, who is going to talk to us about 
everything and all of her experiences around the glass ceiling report, the original glass ceiling report. Um, Renee, would you like to introduce yourself? I've already introduced you, but why don't you go ahead and, and introduce yourself and let everybody know what your role was back on the original glass ceiling report. Well, uh, well, thank you, Michelle. It's a pleasure to be here with you at Women in Technology International. Thank you. <laughs> And so you want to talk about the Glass Ceiling Commission. It was yes. the uh, Civil Rights Act of 1991 established a 21-member bipartisan commission to look at the barriers that impede the advancement of women and minorities, primarily in the private sector. And uh, I uh, was uh, appointed uh, to be the director, the executive director of the Glass Ceiling Commission, because by law, the chair was the Secretary of Labor, who at the time was Secretary Robert Reich, when mm -hmm. I came in. And the 21 members had already been appointed. 50%, uh, uh, 10, 10 of them were for Republican appointees, and 10 were Democratic appointees. Wow. So bipartisan. Bipartisan. And that the Secretary of Labor was the chair to make the 21st member. The commission reported to the president. That's why it was considered a presidential commission. It was mandated by law to be a four-year statutory commission that was to provide the president and the United States Congress with a report of findings, i.e. the existence, the data that supports, if indeed it was their supportable, barriers that impede the advancement at the time known as glass ceiling. And glass ceiling was a term that actually was originally coined in the Wall Street Journal. Mm -hmm as the barriers that women face that they could see up to the top, they could see through, but they couldn't get there, mm -hmm. right? And the Civil Rights Act expanded it because those same barriers are also impeding minorities, racial and ethnic minorities. Renee, can I ask you a question about why you were appointed? What were you doing at the time? What were you doing? <laughs> at that, well, at that time, um, I was running a congressional district office. But I had become familiar with um, the presidential, President Bill Clinton's uh, organization, his administration, when uh, he had been our client. And I was running a uh, research and polling firm, uh, Greenberg Lake, the analysis group. And Bill Clinton was our client at wow. the time when he wanted to uh, be go from governor to president. So I had that connection. I had left there and went on to run another, again, uh, to run the uh, Congressional Office of Congresswoman now in her home's Norton in the District of Columbia. Again, she was also a client <laughs> at the time. So I would seem to be able to get my uh, opportunities through uh, previous clients as a small business. And we were a diverse research political team, which back in the 80, 88, 89, there wasn't really, that was not talked about, and particularly in the area of polling, in the quantitative, qualitative space in politics. So we presented as a very different company. You know, we had Stan was our white guy, right? <laughs> Celinda was our white woman, and I was this black chemist. You were a chemist? I was a chemist with a specialty in surface and colloidal chemistry. It's a long story. Got there from a whole different story. That was doing research on potable water technologies. Wow. Oh. That's why people don't understand the importance of the networking and connecting, because you don't know where it's going to be. That's why you have no permanent friends and no permanent enemies, because you don't know where those relationships will lead you to. Mm. That's, so, that's so true. It's mm -hmm. an important piece. 
Mm-hmm. Speaking of so, networks, how did Witty get involved? Witty, Women in Technology International, was involved as part of the release of the Glass Ceiling Commission work. But when we had uh, put forward the first fact-finding report, the Good for Business, Making Full Use of the Nation's Human Capital, uh, and then the recommendation report was a solid investment. One of the areas that was noted was the area of technology. Uh, I remember fire, finance, insurance, and real estate, right? But we were able to look at the various sectors, right? Uh, The various uh, sectors within the kind of the private sector area. Um, And at the time, uh, Carolyn Layton had reached out saying that this was so applicable and that the recommendations had huge value for trying to break some of the barriers that existed for women in technology because the data was on point and it was data driven. That was one of the other pieces. It was data driven. And part of that data driven was that we actually used an equity lens, a diversity lens by which to look at it. So we had researchers from the various uh, communities, racial and ethnic communities, look at the same set of data and come up with, tell us what was the narrative. Okay, so that people were asked to be attuned to data based on, uh, you know, their unique cultural and background and experience. And so that's how we ended up with a report that had four, had actually five major uh, sections by which we could disaggregate the data because we did have large data sets. And again, access to federal government data, as well as the private institutions, some of the universities and the private organizations that uh, did some of the preliminary research uh, for us. What an undertaking. Yeah, it was big, but it was necessary. And it was a four-year commission, statutory commission, which actually was signed into law by President Bush. Because Civil Rights Act 91, Bill Clinton came in, had the election in 92, and took office in what, in 93. So I came in um, when we had product <laughs> to deliver. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we had to pull a whole bunch together, uh, the research, uh, the public hearings, all the meta-analysis. Uh, we opted to make sure we also got uh, information on organizational culture. At the time, people weren't really calling it culture, per se. But that for us became some of the qualitative assessments that we wanted to do through focus groups and then individual, some individual conversations, ranging with CEOs uh, of corporations to various um, you know, kind of alpha beta level of leadership with an array of organizations. I think the one other piece, there was a caveat in the law that said that we could look at federal government as well. So we said, of course, we needed to look at that because we recognized that some of the remedy had to be with one of the areas in which we found barriers, the government barriers. And so there had to be a role for federal government. And just like we say, organizations need and leadership need to model the behavior they'd like to see in others. And if the federal government, i.e. government of the people, was one in which they wanted equity, equality, access, and no barriers to opportunity, then government needed to be willing to model those behaviors as an institution. Uh, And so we looked at the federal sector as well. You know, um, first of all, and I'll freely admit this, I'm such a research snob. There's nothing I hate more than bad research. And this is the best research. You know, when you and I were talking about this, um, you know, this year, uh, I went back and I read uh, the first two summary reports, right? There actually were many more reports that were produced after this. 
And it's just the very, very best research. I'd say quantitatively, like you said, you had access to all the, the public data, but the stories that came out of that, I love it when you talk about how you gathered those stories. You were talking about testimonies and hearings that were part of the original report. Mm -hmm. Yeah, public hearings, public testimonies. We would send out notice, right, to the various regions in which we went. Um, and corporations, let me just say, A, corporations were the first to sign up, and then B, um, we had many of the nonprofits that worked in the area of equity and justice. A lot of the organizations that focused on women's issues, so-called women's issues, which I always say, well, what is that, trucking or war? Mm. <laughs> right, so it's issues of impact on women. That's part of the language that we have to change is if we're going to break these glass ceilings, how we actually talk about it. You know, what is a woman's issue, right? Is it weapons? Because women design those things too, right? Is it trucking, a historically male in a binary construct, right? Is it science, right? Oh, are we referring to homemaking? Mm-hmm. Right? Now, some I would look at homemaking in terms of the fire, finance, insurance, and real estate, okay? Mm -hmm. Who makes a home, the people who build them. Mm -hmm. Who then finance them? <laughs> okay, mm -hmm. so yeah, this it was a lot of it was a lot of work, but it was critical that we had what I would call data integrity in the process. Um, you need to have reliable data with um, ability to replicate the methodology mm -hmm. and yield uh, comparable, not necessarily similar, because that's part of bringing the cultural perspective to it. Right. When we look at data, we go through our own lens. Right. And so the biases that we bring to bear that also enable the qualitative aspect when we're thinking through of communities, how different communities experience denial of access. Right. Mm -hmm. So having researchers and research teams being led by various by individuals of various racial and ethnic backgrounds, they literally are able to bring that perspective to bear. Right. And, and even the questions, right? I mean, I think that I had this discussion just yesterday. You know, research is not always necessarily, it's oftentimes it's really about making sure you're even asking the right question to begin with, right? And not just repeating other uh, research that over the years has really not led to the outcomes that you want to see. No, no. and part of the question asking becomes, what is the outcomes you want to see, mm -hmm. right? And, mm -hmm. and um, how do you measure them? So if you get clear on what, you know, if you get clear on what equality is versus equity, because we now really do differentiate, the four mm -hmm. people use them interchangeably, right? Equal is one plus nine equals 10, two plus eight equals 10, three plus seven equals 10, four plus six equals 10, five plus five equals 10. They all equal 10, but they're not the same, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So that's what equal is. Mm -hmm. Equity means that they have equal, it means they have access that meets their needs. Mm -hmm. Right, you know, it's like we always would say, "Do you does anyone have kids?" People raise their hand. Do you have more than one? They raise their hand. What well, do you, who do you love the most? Well, we'd have somebody snarkily say, "Well, the one who's going to get the hell out of the house first. <laughs> <laughs> or another snarky remark was, you know, um, uh, who's ever going to? Uh, my favorite is the one who's going to support me when I can't work. <laughs> okay, but then when we get serious, I say, "Like, well, you know." They're they're all different, but I love them equally. Right. right. 
Yeah. Right. And so equal does recognize it's not the same. And equity says that we're not the same and therefore remedy strategy access opportunities are different. So. What about um, so you said it was a bipartisan commission that was established. How do you how do you bring that report to a conclusion? So how does it ever come to an end? What was that process like? So how do you get approval well, for we it? And get what it happened? We had to get signed off by all 21. Our, our, again, our, our goal and our objective was that we had no objections and that we had unanimous uh, consent on the documents, both the fact-finding report, which was mandated, and then the recommendations report. Um, and so we, we had a wonderful body, <laughs> very diverse in all ways, including perspective on how we got to solution. Because mm. when we were able to present sufficient data, it became clear that there were certain remedies um, that needed to happen to get us to the place where, you know, we talk about leveling the playing field, right, um, to get us there. And so we tied into the decision I made, tie into the um, area of interest and proclivity and strength of each one of the 21 members and let them take certain sections of the documents to review, approve based on their expertise, hmm. right? That's why they were on there. So people had work they had to do oh. um, and that the rest of the body would accept those recommendations. How did that go? Uh, we, got, we got it through. We had some bumps and bumps, but we were able to work it through because we had to negotiate some of it. Huh. Right? Yeah. The other nice thing is that the areas that we knew we were gonna have challenges in particular, we made sure that we had a, uh, we figured it would be more of a partisan obstacle in some of the areas, like the areas around government, the government recommendations, uh, and the notion around transparency and data disclosure, right? That was one of the bumpy bumps um, and the recognition that we then recognized in the report in order to get through it is that oftentimes there's too few of women and minorities in these leaderships. So if we're looking for the top five, we clearly know the one woman in the group and therefore we know access to our data. So part of the remedy was why when we have one person who they would call diverse, mm -hmm. which even in that framing marginalizes the individual, but different has different attributes or characteristics than the rest of the organization. And so sample size does matter. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Right. And so in those places, we asked them, what was your pipeline and timeline by which there would be a renewal? Right. Succession planning. Mm -hmm. It's not by intention, not by, as, you know, what we always would say it's by design, not by default. I mean, when you're when you're saying all these things, we've got to remember this is 25 years ago when you were bringing these issues to the fore. And I go back and when I read those reports, we've talked about this, it makes me angry because we had all the answers. Your research was impeccable. The recommendations were incredible. Um, we do see some of them in the workplace, right? There is some data transparency now, but everybody's had to fight for it. Um, we do see women in senior leadership uh, positions. We can point to a lot of really incredible women in the technology space who have held very senior positions all the way from the CEO down through even to middle management, mm -hmm. but nothing's really changed, right? I mean, the just haven't changed. The, see, this is the challenge. It's not just individuals. If you have to get to the institutional, which creates sustainability and permanence. And the numbers are what we would call lag data. 
right? The numbers of diversity. What the, the lead data is what are your processes, right? What are your protocols? What are your people processes within your institution? Um, are you assessing them at each step of the way? That's why assessments become important. You know, the barriers are different in different organizations. They're different in different regional aspects of the corporation or an institution, right? And there may, and the barrier, it's a denial is the consistency, but how it, how it interferes with access for certain cohorts, whether we're looking at women in a binary construct or whether we're looking at LGBTQ plus, right? Whether we're looking at uh, people with disabilities, right? Which, as I always say, okay, that's the most diverse group we got in the world. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And after COVID, there's a lot larger cohort that falls within that characteristic or demographic mm -hmm. um, community. And especially as we recognize mental health as part yep. of as yep. part of that, right? As being a part of can be disabling for you in the workplace. Yep. Mm -hmm. yep. And when we say women, there's the same. There's a host of diversity there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, Renee, well, sorry, Michelle. You said something so important at the beginning of that. I want to make sure that that we emphasize and and don't just gloss over the importance of what you said about systems, systems and structures. Can you say Can you say that again? Yeah, that part of our challenge is it's not just individuals. We keep looking at this as individual effort only, but it's institution. And individuals do have an important role because individuals make up culture and individuals as a collective make up institutions. And therefore, it goes to the notion of leadership. And are, are they willing to lead? You know, while I'm asking, you know, oh, do you have the courage to actually lead and do something different? Okay. That's you're right. And so you have to begin to see these institutional changes. Some of the institutional changes go to the systems. Right. Mm -hmm. So what it, so what is your recruitment and out, what does your outreach look like? Right. What is your recruitment? What's your what is your how do you even look at your position description? Right. A position description is supposed to tie the mission and functionality to be able to achieve uh, the organization's goals and objectives. OK. Um, who's making the decision? The impact of bias. Yeah. Right. Those are all elements that impact systems. So while we might get one or two right, that get through the gauntlet of barriers. Yeah, so we've had a 100% increase. We went to one to two. I mean, that's how people are reporting. Oh, we had 100% increase in women in leadership. Well, then now, now we even see, A, they went from one to two, or they made the leadership category so large, it's even worse. But yep. they want to get the percentage. Oftentimes, you know it's a small number when they give you their percentage growth as opposed to the ability to articulate their actual numbers. So again, a barrier. How do we want to talk about it? Are we doing it by design and continuing to create the barriers just in how we choose to communicate it? Right. Oh, we're doing a great job. We had 100 percent increase in uh, individual and applicants from diverse communities. OK, so you went from zero to one. Renee, thank you so much for being our guest today. We are just thrilled and honored to have you. And there's so much more we can talk about. There's so many more questions that we need to answer and ask. And we want to hear more from you. So we'd love to have you back next week. It's been wonderful having you. Thank you. What's happening in the news this week? Okay, in the news. So let's see, in the last couple of weeks. Well, first of all, it's election day today. Let's oh. talk about that. Let's talk about that. There's not a lot happening in my home state of Massachusetts. I think there's a couple of things going on, but I'm still going to go vote. And of course, Stacey, you're always talking about voting rights. Yeah. 
Yep. I mean, we don't have that much on the ballot in California, but I can tell you that I know for those of you who are listening in your state, if you have any voter restriction laws on your ballot, please do vote. You know, we came across a sad and fascinating statistic recently that tells us that 14 states since January 1 of 2022, 14 states have enacted 22 laws to restrict voter access. This is some kind of a record, a bad record, some kind of a record, right? I mean, that's amazing to me. We need to turn out and vote. I also read another statistic that in 2020, 68% of the registered voters in the United States turned out to vote. We need to vote, please vote. Whatever you have on your ballot today, read up on it and go vote, right? I mean, it is, I, I have to tell you, so I'm Australian. I've lived here for about 30 years. I am a US citizen as well. I actually became a US citizen so I could vote, right? There's a lot of reasons why you might want to be become a citizen. But for me, it came down to voting. And it wasn't even just voting in the federal elections. It was so I could vote in my local town elections where you choose your school administrator and what day your garbage gets collected on. And I mean, voting to me, it's just such a fundamental part of how I grew up. I mean, voting in Australia is actually compulsory. This is why it's such a dichotomy living here where people just choose not to vote. I mean, in Australia, if you don't vote, you get fined. What? Your employer has to, yeah, yes, compulsory <laughs> voting. It's a thing. It's a thing in most countries. I think there's like 30 countries have compulsory voting, maybe more. <laughs> um, I mean, you get, you'll get get 92% turnout rate of registered and eligible voters in Australia because if you don't, you get fined. It, it they They do everything to make it as easy as possible for you to vote there. I just... I can't even believe what we're seeing happen in some of these states. I just I can't believe it. We're making, right. it, making it harder for, for people's voices to be heard. And, well, you know, sadly, yeah. 66% compared to 90-something in Australia. Are you kidding? Oh, yeah. You can see it in the – go look at the data. You know, once voting was made compulsory, I think even in Australia it was like, gosh, it was over 100 years ago. Um but, you know, there used to be rates of around 90, uh, of around 50% in Australia, but compulsory voting gets people out to vote and then you get everybody's voices are heard. Seems like a pretty simple solution. It certainly <laughs> does. It's right. oh, And uh, jury duty should be the same. Yeah, right. No. I, I don't know. Yeah. I, everybody go vote today, even if it's not that important. Exercise your, your freedom of speech and yeah. your ability to go vote. and. Um, Again, even if you're voting for garbage day in your in your local town, I think it's important to go do that. Um, you know what else happened in the last couple of weeks? The Biden administration released their first national strategy on gender equity and equality. So that I've was heard of that before. Yep, extremely important. And I was happy to see it because the last two executive orders that have come out relating to diversity have not included gender. They talked a little bit about gender identity, but really didn't relate back to issues of gender and particularly those of women. And they are also really doubling down on interconnected or intersectional approaches to gender as it relates to things like race and 
sexual orientation and religion and disability and age and socioeconomic status. Um, That's encouraging. It is, and it's complex. And I'm glad that the government is getting behind it and really working on the nuances that have been, I think, really holding us back, um, particularly for women on greater participation in the workplace, particularly in technology. So um, that to me was a critical piece that got released in the last couple of weeks. It's all the foundation for this government-wide strategy around diversity in the workplace. So um, I know that Nancy Pelosi a couple of weeks ago made some pretty bold statements around the Build Back Better Act. I don't really care what your politics are and how you think about that infrastructure bill. But the point she made on it was the economic security piece and how we have to have an economy that works for women. And it doesn't just mean equal access to jobs and it doesn't just mean breaking down those systemic barriers in institutions. Um, it means things like childcare and access to affordable health care. Also being able to just have women think about a level playing field when they they go into the workplace. So I, I thought that was, working. what's remote, that? Even re- just remote working for women. Remote, remote work. I mean, to me, I know that there's just a lot of women when we've gone through COVID and we'll be writing about this in the report, you know, we call it the great resignation, the great she session. September, 300,000 women left the workforce. Again, we know a lot of it comes down to simple things like childcare and paid time off for families, which again, many other countries in the world have figured that out about 50 years ago. Again, I don't think it really matters what your politics are here. This is something that's clearly related back to keeping our GDP strong, helping grow our economy, um, having women participate in the workforce when, again, they're 50 percent of the overall workforce and 60 percent of all college um, graduates. Uh, we just should not be having discussions around pay equity anymore. So I think that that's a really important initiative that got launched a couple of weeks ago. That's great. Well, that's, let's end on a high point and uh, <laughs> something encouraging. And we will look forward to another discussion with Renee. We're going to have Renee back as a guest in two more weeks. So we look can't forward wait. to Yeah. I can't wait. I just wish you could take Renee's brain and put it on paper so everyone could read it. It's incredible. The um, experience she's had and the things that she says and her knowledge is, is unbelievable. Yep. Great, Stacy. Okay, Michelle. Thank Thank you. you. Thanks for listening to Unravel. Don't forget to rate and follow us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. For more content, follow us on Instagram at Glass Ceiling Institute. Follow us on Twitter at GCI Official. And visit our website, glassceilinginstitute.com. See you next time.